I made me help her laugh. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Al Curlin, longtime youth worker in Upper Manhattan and author of the forthcoming book, The Soul of Adolescence Aligns with the Heart of Democracy, Orphans, Rebels, and Civic Lovers Unite. Welcome, Al. Thank you so much for having me and including me in your uh, family of philosophers and social change agents. You're totally welcome. Thank you for joining us. You've worked with young people in Washington Heights for over 40 years. Tell us about the community and its youth. Okay, so when I first became uh, invited or enrolled to work with young people, it was in December of 1984. And Washington Heights at that time was a very different place from what it is today. So in the, the, in the 1980s, the Heights on the streets and even in people's own buildings was a very intimidating environment. In our precinct alone, we had 100 homicides a year. So people you know, went from place to place, like a child may go from home to school or a parent from home to work, but they did it with great trepidation because of the, uh, the culture of the streets, which was, was perpetually dangerous. You know, that was uh, one factor that's different from today. And uh, the, the second factor is I initially was in working or volunteering with a community-based organization that was totally adult-oriented. It was called the Riverside Heights Security Association. And we were basically formed to address the, the issue of violence and public safety at the time. And all of us were adults. And in the course of our meetings, it came up that we were not addressing the needs of young people. Because people knew I had worked with youth before, but not at a community-based level, I had been uh, first a teacher and then a supervisor in special education. I had done that for 22 years. They asked me to write a proposal to create a new program in the southern portion of the Heights, what we call the Southern Heights. And that got funded and we opened as after school program on a budget of $9,100 per year, which means staff didn't get paid. I didn't get paid. You know, I retained my job, you know, at the school in Queens and then came to volunteer as a quote unquote executive director for this organization. And within a few months, our enrollment at the school of PS 128 in the Northern Manhattan was 140 young people, about 20 of whom were uh, young teens and high school teens who attended the program and also doubled as volunteer staff. So in essence, according to the rules, you know, the Office of Children and Family Services and the Department of Health we were, without a doubt, the most illegal youth program functioning because nobody except for myself uh, was over the age of 18, except for Coach Dave, who could not join the program on board because he had his own program, but he actually trained the teenagers on what to do and, and told them to listen to me no matter what, no matter how experimental and clueless I, clueless I appeared because I had never done street programs before, you know, with youth. So that was, that was the beginnings. Today, you know, the Heights, 
you know, still is a challenged community. You know, we have you know, a large portion of the population, you know, that lives at poverty or near poverty levels. But we also have a new population, you know, coming from gentrified ranks. So whereas before our precincts had 100 homicides a year, uh, I think we had one homicide last year. And, you know, levels of violence, you know, whether it's, you know, street shootings, you know, robberies, you know, significantly down, still a concern. It's always a concern, especially in these times of uh, isolation, but nothing approaching the atmosphere that existed when the program began. What did you do that made the program so successful? Okay, uh, thank you for that uh, question. So the first thing I did is, in addition to you know, working in adult programs and serving on the community board and being a member of uh, you know, a small democratic club, I reached out to the son of one of the executive members, Dave Crenshaw, who was the executive director of the Dreamers, at the uh, bequest of his father, Richard Crenshaw, who had been serving as an executive member for the democratic club. And he said, look, my, my son is barely out of high school, but he's also running a program you know, very successfully. He said he has no money, but he has vision and he has the allegiance of a, a lot of young people that would follow him into the fire. And he has his own methodology in running the program. So uh, I met with Coach Dave and, uh, you know, we talked, you know, at, at several meetings and he agreed to come on board as, as an outside advisor and be the person that makes sure that the, uh, the team volunteer staff receives continuous training. He gets feedback from the teens. He gets feedback from me. And together we work out how to make you know, a team volunteer staff in running the organization. The second approach I used is at, at the time, uh, the city had in place people they, they called youth coordinators. They were kind of a, a hybrid hire. 50% from the local community board and 50% for what was then called the, the Department of Youth Services. And their job was to function as technical assistants and liaisons from the community board and from the city to make sure that newly founded youth organizations are finding their way. And the first thing he uh, told me after he observed my program a couple of times is, you know, he told me, I, you know, I really like what you're doing, but two things, you were operating in an atmosphere of what he called controlled chaos. There's a lot of creative energy, but you need outside partners to help you create structure and stability you know, for what you're doing. So you need to, to have partners come in to run components within the program. So that's what I did. I you know, initially went to the Washington Heights and Inwood Development Corporation and they had a, a training comp component where they would have not only lectures, but videotape experiences for the teenagers on how to define themselves through resumes and, and doing interviews. I also partnered with St. Catherine's Church, which had its own teen pregnancy and you know, personal responsibility component. And they had you know, well-experienced trainers, so they would come in once a week. And then uh, the third initial partner I had was something called the Explorer Program. That's, what, that's where you see the reference to Explorer Post 280. 
which is a community service slash sports program for teenagers. It's a co-ed program. And with that program, we were able to afford teenagers leadership training, you know, on, on how to run groups with, with children, some of whom are oppositional and some of whom are cooperative, but also how to expand upon a young person's experience with a camping program. And the, the camping program was really an essential component for bonding adults who volunteered for the program and youth volunteers. Because we would be out in the middle of the woods, you know, with a, a roaring fire and flashlights and dependent on making sure we collected firewood in order to stay warm and cooking our own food. So, you know, interdependently, you know, we, we became capable of supporting each other. Right. So it sounds as though you are really utilizing all the resources in the community and creating yes. almost a hub so that these kids could benefit. Um, you mentioned the word dreamers, and perhaps you could differentiate between what dreamers means to us now and what the dreamers that you're talking about. When Coach Day founded the Dreamers, he based the operation of the program based on his partially on his own personal experience of moving from what he called tunnel vision and, and negative expectations to having a, a broadened perspective and changing the story he tells himself about himself and the story he sees in others from one of being negative to being positive. So part of his personal experience is when he was getting ready to go to high school, he was accepted into the Hunter High School program. As part of the class, he was the first, among the first males in a co-ed class at Hunter High School. It had been all girls up until the year he was accepted. And initially he was a little bit apprehensive. You know, he had to have people encourage him to go because he was going to experience a culture totally different from everything he knew. And after he got down there, you know, it was the staff at Hunter High, but also his classmates that changed his opinion, not only about who they are, but also changed Dave's approach to who he is. He wasn't you know, a successful student just operating in you know, a, a trying culture in the Heights, but he was exposed to people that expanded his horizons. So one example is at the time Hunter College High School had clubs and a few students wanted to form a club for gays and lesbians. So Dave became an ardent supporter of that club being formed and work closely with one of the students who happens to be Cynthia Nixon, who I think, you know, the star of uh, Sex in the City. And Cynthia still occasionally comes back to the community to speak on behalf of Coach Dave and the uh, Dreamer program, because she still appreciates his initial efforts from their, their high school days. So Dave, in putting together the program, understands that young people have tunnel vision because they kind of see life through the lens of what they experience in their families, on the streets, and whatever experiences that they have in the school. 
and that they need to be exposed to experiences that expand their viewpoint and also help them to change the stories about themselves. So for instance, a typical phrase I would hear from a lot of young men in the community is, I don't think I'll live to see the age of 30. So why should I I invest myself in a future that doesn't exist? And I was really stunned, you know, by hearing that, stunned and disturbed. And it took a lot of dialogue and a lot of programming where young people saw there was an alternative way of living to get them to change their story about themselves. And a lot of these young people actually became peer leaders for other young people in helping them to change their stories also. What was that process? I mean, how does somebody who in their teens thinks they're not going to make it to 30 come to see that they not only can and will, but then go on to be successful at what they want to be doing? The the process was, uh, to begin with, in order to participate in the Dreamer program and also the PAL program in the early days, young people did not have to pay anything to become part of the program. But in the various components of the program, whether it was going to play in a basketball game or going on a camping trip, young people had to write essays about their experiences on the camping trip. So, you know, some of the young people, we had a program which is kind of on the borderline of young people that were growing up in Dominican American communities and African American and Caribbean American communities that didn't, they didn't know each other. And they they had formed negative stereotypes about each other. So when they came together and had to play in the same team or cook the same meal around a campfire, they got to learn through personal experience that these people that they formerly had reservations about were actually good friends and teammates. And that's kind of the model of the Dreamer program and what PAL adopted up in the Heights is, you know, first be a friend to yourself and also be a friend to others. And this is how a lot of uh, young people came up through the program, you know, kind of living that motto, sharing with their elders, you know, Coach Dave and myself, what they were writing about in their essays, which reflected their experiences in the program and their aha moments about how life was not uh, fatalistic, but they actually could change the course of their life destination through participation. That sounds very dewey You know, John Dewey, who famously said, we don't learn from experience, we learn from reflecting on experience. Absolutely. And I, I came to learn about Dewey, you know, some years after I did the program, and that reading his writings became... You know, affirmational for myself. Oh, yeah, I think I've, I may not be perfect, but I'm on the right path. And it sounds as though, from everything you've been saying, that it wasn't adult-centric, that even though you and Coach Dave may have been the adult figures, that a lot of this had to be going on among the young people themselves, and that they must have been investing a lot of energy in building these relationships and not just sort of falling back into, well, this is my group or that's your group. Yes, it was, it was a, absolutely a teen-centric program. And again, it was their experience of, of participating in the program 
but also in the community that helps to build their allegiance, you know, to the adult leaders such as myself and Coach Dave in the program. And to give you two short examples, which I describe in the book, one of the participants was a young teen named Miriam Payne, who was a member of a family that had emigrated from Liberia, which at the time was embroiled in a you know, pretty dangerous uh, civil war. And even though her family were you know, doctors and nurses, and they weren't specifically impacted, they were a little bit insulated, they still chose to come to America to start a new life. And where did they wind up? Living on the corner of 165th Street and Edgecombe Avenue in the heart of the drug trade and the shooting. So Miriam, who volunteered from the program, was a tireless and energetic uh, volunteer who would sit in the homework room and help younger elementary school students with their homework. And, and she would come every day. And if you know, I made up a rule where you can't go to the gym to play basketball until you go to the homework room first, in the early days, nobody was listening to me or taking me seriously or maybe following begrudgingly. But when Miriam, who at the time was about 15, or Jerry Renault, who at the time was 16, and who was, quote unquote, the supervisor for the floor, told them, oh, yeah, you're going to the homework room first. Off they went. And there were no questions asked because it was one of their older peers that was giving the directive. So that bettered the fortunes of the young people, but it also empowered the teenagers themselves to feel like they were effective at, at you know, getting things done. You said that teens are more isolated in America and other modern societies than in more traditional societies. Why is this? What I call traditional, you know, native or indigenous societies, you know, for hundreds of years, probably thousands of years, part of the process of growing up was being incorporated into the lifetime activities of the adult world. So young people were expected to, even though they were youth participants, to be participants in adult society. And when they reached an age of transition, which these societies typically considered to be about the age of 13, they went through ceremony, you know, rites of passage, where young people were encouraged to go on an adventure to help them to you know, discover things about themselves internally, but also discover skills that made them more effective leaders or potential leaders, tribal leaders or indigenous leaders you know, in, in their own societies. In modern society, these rituals kind of faded into the background on the part of families and leaders at the local level and became institutionalized. Some positive ways in schools, where the rites of passage became school graduations. Or if they were after high school, it might be ROTC and becoming inducted you know, into the military. So these uh, rites of passage did not necessarily serve the positive internal assets of young people, but they were kind of used as, as tokens to serve the larger interests 
whether it was the military or requirements by business and corporations to kind of look to these outside agencies as determinant of what it meant you know, to be an adult. I think that these represented social, emotional challenges. Well, they still do for young people in this transition of becoming an adult. I see this as four kind of meta choices. The first is, are they to remain invisible to adults for who they really are with their own life purpose and the reason they have for moving forward? Or are they going to gradually become visible to adults? And, and the way they do that is by choosing not to stay silent, but to become heard. And I'll give one brief example, again, with Miriam Payne. She was by nature a very quiet teen. But when the organization decided to embark on a campaign to address the community board, to get better services for a local park at Edgecombe and 165th Street that we called the pit, we did so because the pit was a very neglected public space. It was other parks in the neighborhood had flower beds and elaborately you know, developed ecological pleasing schemes. In the pit, it was broken asphalt, no parky house, and hundreds of needles scattered throughout the, the grounds. And it was also used as a spot in the evening for people to shoot up and have uh, illicit sex. So it was not a place at night that people went to at all. And even during the day, people were very apprehensive. So Miriam volunteered when we went to the community board to be one of the public speakers. And they, they gave public speakers like three minutes. And she astounded not only the community board, but astounded uh, Coach Dave and myself, because she sounded like Mrs. Al Sharpton. You know, these powerful you know, intonations and talked about her personal experience as a, a young person of having to go to a, a public space where she felt it was safe to go, but that she also had responsibility to improve as a member of a team, you know, the Explorer Post 280. At the end of that three minutes, I mean, the community members were standing up, applauding and cheering. And uh, we were just so proud of what she did. And she also got responses from the commander of the local precinct and the director of parks and recreation. So it wasn't perfect, but whereas before there was largely total neglect, you began to see some intervention on the part of the city. By the way, today you would not recognize that space because you've got you know, the, uh, the Olympic rings and perfect asphalt and uh, you know, modern playground. And uh, it's heavily utilized as our space you know, by the community. So what would be the components of a meaningful rite of passage? And also what happens afterwards to give it some legs? So for example, Jewish kids have a bar mitzvah and it's a kind of a running joke. You know, today you are a man, but Monday you're going back to seventh grade. So when I, when I speak of the, the rites of passage that I was, or our organizations were engaged in, I'm speaking about a, a civics learning rites of passage. Or what organization I collaborate closely with, a Generation Citizen, 
don't know if you're familiar with them, but they work closely with social studies teachers to create what they call an action civics experience. It's a semester long experience. Mm. And the key components are that the adult in charge allows the students to determine or express what their both classroom, school-based, community, and larger issues of concern are in their own lives. So young people tend to formulate issues a lot because we're working in underserved schools about not having the proper resources or even necessarily the teachers that are certified in, in subject areas such as math and science areas, lack of having access to advanced progress courses in high school, but also having experiences as young and as elementary school in doing community service, okay, and affecting change even in their own schools. So it's, it's listening to the, to the youth agenda and as importantly, allowing youth to formulate, lead, and direct the response to the needs you know, of that agenda. It begins with conceptualizing you know, what the campaign is to be, which includes uh, student voice. And it, it's also managing the campaign and assessing the campaign for successes and its obstacles so they, they can affect adaptation in, in the future. And if I could, I'd give one brief example of this approach that was used in Florida. And it's talked about in a book called uh, Join the Club by Tina Rosenberg. And it had to do with the issue of teen smoking. So the state of Florida, you know, through the early 90s, had had adult-led campaigns, which basically utilized informational approaches and scare tactics in an attempt to reduce the rates of teen smoking. And it wasn't working. You know, the levels were staying, you know, plateaued. But uh, someone who had been you know, exposed to youth-centered approach, you know, to problem solving, said that our problem is, is we're considering teens to be the problem when they need to be the problem solvers. So we have to enlist teenagers to both design the campaign, do the outreach, and do the assessment of how the campaign works. So they went to all the uh, high schools and even middle schools in Florida and created clubs, uh, what they called, you know, get the smoke out of your eyes campaigns where they approached adults to change their opinion of the efficacy of young people. And they also approached uh, institutions that supported smoking habits, local bodegas and the tobacco industry itself. And two years later, they began to see declines in the incidence of teen smoking, which lasted for about five years. And then unfortunately, because it was adults that determined the continuous fund funding for this campaign, they decided that because the problem was solved, they cut the funding. So that no understanding that there's a whole new generation of young people growing up that didn't have this leadership to guide them. But this, this is why we're pushing so hard to become teen-led initiatives supported by adults who work on the horizontal plane of decision-making that allow the teenagers to take us forward 
because it's their futures. In addition to present circumstances. So, as you're talking, the idea of young people, you talked about how Miriam talked about her own experience and then used it as a platform for insisting that the community make changes and improve, improve the park. What do you see as the relationship between young people and teenagers and younger, and younger children being able to tell their stories and also tying this to, to what they want to see in their futures? Well, I think that the relationship is the connection is made by adults who I call civic co-mentors, who assist young people in seeing the transition in their own perceptions and expectations about themselves for very personal issues, being connected in you know, a variety of ways to other people who face the same challenge and the same process, and when joined together could, could work on uh, campaigns that help young people to change your expectations about themselves and their stories about themselves. So for that, I'll give one example, uh, Inaya, who's also uh, addressed in the book, who had been a child, a single parent family, you know, mother having substantial challenges and expressing very negative expectations about Inaya, which led her to make choices which uh, many people in the field call self-sabotaging choices. You know, establishing friendships with other negative people who validated, you know, the, you know their self-sabotaging behaviors. And she joined a program that was called Youth Link. It was uh, sponsored by the PAL, where young people uh, became engaged in conversations with other young people who would change their stories and this made it safe for Anaya to begin to explore changing her own story because she had the comfort of, of validation from other young people. And then she also had adult mentors, you know, the civic, there were more than civic co-mentors and the social, emotional, intelligence changing co-mentors that really encouraged her when she took those very courageous steps in changing her opinion of herself and taking initial steps. I mean, now she's, uh, I think she's in her final year of, of a four-year college, mm-hmm. you know, up in, in Vermont. And she also, with the assistance of other peers in college, creates programs for young people in those communities, you know, to become engaged, you know, in projects to help transform themselves. So it's kind of like the, the oak helping to create many acorns. So Al, you've spoken about mentorship and the what I guess we'd call a big sister, little sister, or big brother, you know, relationship among the youth themselves. Could you address that a little more specifically? I mean, what kind of work do you do to uh, to nurture these relationships? So we enter the programs still exist with uh, the two eighty dreamers which is where I have my uh, most active participation. We established uh, one-on-one and small group mentoring experiences between students, many of whom come from similar backgrounds Mm -hmm. to the students that we're serving today, but who have become successful in the educational uh, realm. 
So we're talking about college students. But we're also talking about graduate students who work for Dr. Robert Fullylove, who does a program in the, in the Mailman School of Public Health. And these graduate students get to work side by side with students who are high school age and, and younger on projects that they agree, you know, that they want to enact. But in the course of doing those projects, they also get to exchange personal stories, you know, where the graduate students may talk about some of the challenges they faced and openly express, you know, some of the fears they had about being able to, you know, become successful, some of the urges sometimes to walk away or give up and being encouraged to, to move forward, you know, despite the, you know, the decline in their energies. And this gives uh, young people like an, an experiential reference point and, and a trusted ally, because it's, it's all about developing trust in order to get young people to feel safe and listening, for young people to move forward and make the decision you know, to change the story. And also to share that change story you know, with, with the larger community. So I call it a, a, a process of navigation where the co-mentor appreciates that they themselves are still in a, a lifelong learning process where they're keeping their inner adolescent alive, but at the same time, sharing their adult wisdom in ways that are not threatening to young people themselves or intimidating, I should say. How can schools enhance adolescents' sense of efficacy? Well, I think that schools have come a long way from where they were only a few years ago. And schools are, to a much larger extent, encouraging experiences where young people become involved in active civics programs, such as the you know, one operated by Generation Citizen, where they get to spend a whole semester in the process, not only of identifying issues, but doing academic and experiential research about the issue, developing a program on a very, very specific you know, agenda. So for instance, you, you have organizations like Teens for Food Justice that work in middle schools, have complaints about the school menu and actually change the choices that school administrations make into making menus more healthful, you know, less high saturated fat, less sugar, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And having those menus adopted by the school. And this happens because the youth organization with this teen leadership, not only partners with you know, adult-led organizations that have an agenda for, for food justice and eliminating food deserts you know, in the community, but they also help them create training programs that are incorporated into the school agenda. So what used to be called maybe a hygiene course is now expanded into a civics course that incorporates best habits for young people to not only adopt, but have the opportunity to become enrolled in, in their own school experience. I suspect that there are many educators and community members who are listening to this 
who are wondering how they can start programs in their own communities. I mean, you've been incredibly successful. What would you suggest for someone who is interested in putting together their own program? Well, I would suggest as a self-serving starting point, read my book. (laughs) Because the way the book is constructed, the book does four things. The first thing it does is it uh, gives a peek at how three life experiences, which could have been a source of paralysis or negative expectations, became transformed into positive ones. So the first experience was the experience I had with a high school teacher that I deeply trusted, who asked us to change the narrative of a short story. And the, the anthology she used were all militaristic stories about soldiers and war stories and you know, how this shaped you know, the future of the country. And this particular story focused on a group of Japanese soldiers that are captured by American soldiers and then they're, they're put in uh, temporary jails and then they're transported to you know, camps you know, once the, their countries are quote unquote liberated. And I changed the ending to the story where I said there was a, a huge typhoon that hit that island that destroyed all the encampments, destroyed the food supplies, and made it necessary for Japanese soldiers and American soldiers to cooperate, A, just staying alive with all these winds and pouring rain, and B, on finding alternative food sources until the ships arrived. Mm -hmm. So obviously the Japanese soldiers were still under guard, you know, at, at gunpoint, But in the minds of American soldiers, they got to perceive the Japanese in a different way. And they, everybody survived because they cooperated. What happened is when I read that change excerpt to the class, the teacher stood up in a rage, told me my story was communist junk. (laughs) Remember, this was like the 1960s. And reduced my semester grade from 90 to 75. My parents tried to fight this and couldn't. So I use that in, in two ways. A, to remind people that this was still a trusted teacher that exposed me to a lot of positive experiences that had one really serious snafu for me. But what needed to be understood was that today teachers and students are developing the ability to challenge inappropriate censorship. And that they should use these channels to challenge censorship where it's you know, not appropriate and change you know, the expectations of institutions and also adults about what their right is to uh, you know, express themselves. So I'll stop there because otherwise I'll talk forever. I'll just talk, stop with that one story. Second point is I, I have a, a lot of references to other youth organizations in the book, you know, from Generation Citizen to you know, Teens for Food Justice and Teens Take Charge, you know, to the youth groups that you know, started in the Parkland High School in Florida. And as I've ex- discovered only this morning, I am rediscovering what you people are doing with their young ethicists. 
you know, who are exploring and determining paths forward for addressing issues that are important to them. My hope would be to connect not only through the book, but through developing a, a webpage, connecting people that want to find out how do I start a program. So connect them to Generation Citizen that has already successfully changed hundreds of middle school and high school classrooms in eight cities in the United States, including Oklahoma and Texas. Visit the resource page. Thank you so much, Al Curlin. And we will include, if it's okay with you, on our website a way that people can contact you if they'd like to. Yes. That works for you. But this has been really very, very interesting. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or a review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.